you could also compare that Flash Gordon is composed by Queen and Dune is composed by Toto, and both <laughs> movies are produced by Dino De Laurentiis. So, double feature, make it happen, or I'll take you down, Craig. Or else I'll f- go back to bed. Oh, wow. That's the most amazing threat I've ever heard from Edwin. <laughs> Do this, or I'll go back to bed. The most viable threat I've ever heard from Edwin. <laughs> Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 66. This train keeps rolling like Snowpiercer into the apocalypse. You cannot stop us. These podcast numbers just keep, we keep stacking them like bills at a craft stable. I don't know. I'm out of metaphors. It's early. It's good to have everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about Jonathan Demi and the Talking Heads. Amazing. Many would say the greatest concert film of all time, Stop Making Sense, as well as when directors branch out and do things that are not narrative filmmaking. So for instance, Jonathan Demi is famous for this. Not only did he do Talking Heads, he's filmed Spalding Gray's uh, monologues, two of them. He's done commercials. He's done music videos. Jonathan Demi, I believe, famously did one of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA videos that's really famous. And Jonathan Demme has just done a ton of stuff, but so have many other directors. And a lot of people have argued that that actually allows directors to grow, learn new techniques. It's sort of the equivalent of when a farmer sows a different kind of crop or lets a field go fallow, you sort of rejuvenate. And most recently, filmmakers like Richard Linklater and Paul Thomas Anderson have embraced Jonathan Demme as really a mentor in this uh, sense and have gone on to do a lot of interesting things but we'll get into that in a moment who is with us today hey it's daniel hey it's me the people's champion Connor lloyd cruz hello america just get on with it do you realize edwin that our podcasts are probably in real time literally charting your progression from a young los angeles youth to a buddha i don't know what that means man i'm tired i'm sleepy I just want to get this over with already. Moving on. This week, I am excited to say it was just really inspiring. Of course, you can never take anything for granted. Every new week, you got to reinvent the wheel in a way you've got to always give 200%. So you can't really like rest on your laurels, but it does give you a little more gas and juice. We sold out. Daniel was there. Edwin was there. We sold out our Fassbender Beware of a Holy Whore 35 millimeter Wednesday night screening. And it looks like this Wednesday night, uh, you'll hear this after it's done, but the bitter tears of Petrovon is on the way to selling out as well. So when you hear this on Friday, Secret Movie Clubbers, we are doing Fox and His Friends the next Wednesday, and you may want to get tickets. I love Fassbender. I just realized that I think he's going to be our director for 2021 because we're finishing up Kubrick. We're sort of leaning into Fassbender. So I think I'm going to get a T-shirt made, maybe a poster, but it's awesome to have you. He is the guy for 2021 in a way. He never had any money. He made four movies a year. He figured it out. He was scrappy. The movies are brilliant. There's some of the most honest, insightful, brutal, brilliantly observed about the world. He shot in all directions. He didn't cut anybody any slack, and yet he was an incredible humanist. So come join us to watch really challenging cinema. And then by the time you hear this Friday night, we are going to be doing a double bill of Milos Forman's Loves of a Blonde, one of my 10 favorite movies of all time, a Czech film from 1964, 65, I think. If you've never seen it, it's 
just one of the most emotionally beautiful and heartbreaking and sexually open films I've ever seen. And I love it. I've loved it ever since I saw it. And it's been in my top 10 my whole adult life. I would love for you to see it on 35 millimeter and probably Milos Forman's best film, in my opinion. And then next, we are doing that same night, Igmar Bergman's sex comedy, Smiles of a Summer Night, which is one of my favorite Bergman movies. And a lot of people, when they think of Bergman, they think, you know, Seven Seal. They think of death playing chess with a knight and real heavy stuff. But Bergman made a number of comedies that are as hilarious as anything. And this is one of them. And then Saturday, we are doing a Paramount archive print of Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. And I will tell you, Secret Movie Clubbers, we are getting a print that nobody else gets. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to let that hang there. Nobody else gets this print. We got it Saturday. Come enjoy it with us. It's also going to be, as a Catholic, this is going to be my redemption for showing Once Upon a Time in the West on 16 millimeter. If you guys remember that at the Regent, that was a bad idea. Man, you don't show a Sergio Leone movie on 16 millimeter where you have to change the reels every 20 minutes. Never doing that again. Uh, So now you get to see it on 35 millimeter without reel interruptions on a Paramount Archive print. So come, let me redeem. Let me beg your forgiveness. Absolve me. And then Saturday night, we are doing Francois Truffaut's, one of my favorite Truffaut's films, Jules and Jim. Martin Scorsese has been explicit that the entire Goodfellas style was inspired by the first 30 minutes of Jules and Jim. And once you see it, you'll know why. It is breakneck. And then along with that, next Monday, we are going to announce the 12 movies that are going to get on to Channel 35 for our 2021 Secret Movie Club and Channel 35 Short Film Festival. And I think it's fair to say that within the next week, finally, we're going to release that redub of Attack of the Giant Leeches that the Resistance did. Eminently upcoming, because... The Resistance is going to return to the theater live in August, and they are going to redub the Italian Jaws ripoff, The Last Shark. That's on a Thursday, I think, August 19th. So weirdly, you can all tell me that I just see things where there's nothing to be seen. Weirdly, it worked out again that it took us so long to do Giant Leeches, because now you can hear the comedic stylings of the Resistance, and then three weeks later, come and see him uh, live at the club. We're going to have a great time. And there is many other things happening we will save that for another time. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com, podcast at secretmovieclub.com, and you can see everything that we're doing on secretmovieclub.com. Lastly, I am going to try to announce the entirety of August and September, although certainly I'll be adding things as we go. Um, my goal is a week from this Friday. So this Friday is the 23rd. So July 30th. Look out July 30th for the release of a two-month schedule. Our final quarter of the year, fall, as long as you know no mishigas and craziness happens, is going off. There are some things that are going to be happening that I'm very excited about, but we'll talk about that as we get closer to it. In 1983, at the Pantages Theater, I am so proud of this as a native Los Angelino, the talking heads at the height of their just musical talent and really sort of concert presence, which is not the same thing. Anybody who's really, really into music knows that there's some artists who are amazing in the studio and not on stage. And then conversely, there are a lot of artists that are amazing on stage and not necessarily producing music that's going to last any amount of time. The Talking Heads, nevertheless, were amazing at both. At the pinnacle of really their powers, filmmaker Jonathan Demme, who had been making movies for quite a while, but was himself ahead of his Something Wild, Married to the Mom, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia Run, which was really going to be his amazing run, but it already made Melvin and Howard and Caged Heat and a number of films in the 70s and early 80s. But anyway, Jonathan Demme went to the Pantages Theater in L.A. and for four nights shot the Talking Heads doing their Stop Making Sense tour. Initially, Demme uh, had wanted to recreate the set on a soundstage, which is the way a filmmaker would definitely think, so he could get all these crazy angles. And the Talking Heads and David Byrne, the head of the Talking Heads, who had come up with the stage concept 
concept was like, no way. If you want it to really work, we have to have that audience because it's a synchronicity. It's a mutual thing. We're feeding off the audience. The audience is feeding off us. If we shot it in the studio without an audience, it just wouldn't feel the same. And Jonathan Demi got it. So what they did was every night they set up the cameras in a whole bunch of ways and they would shoot in one direction, the next night, the other direction, the next night behind them, the next night from the audience. Then they edited the whole thing together. This concert movie has now gone on to be considered one of the greatest concert movies along with Martin Scorsese's Last Waltz and a few others. But the fascinating thing is we showed it uh, last Friday, and I think everybody who's on the podcast was there. One of my favorite moments in Secret Movie Club history so far was just two people came up to me and they were like, hey, can we dance? And I was like, in my head, I was like, yeah, of course, I'm not going to tell people not to dance. And I'm projecting in the booth and suddenly the whole booth starts to shake. The whole floor starts to shake. And I look out of the corner of my eye on the right. And I think, I don't know, you guys were in the room. What would you say? 10, 20 people? And you could feel in the room, I think probably what Demi and the Talking Heads wanted, which was some kind of energy was coursing through the room because of the movie and people were getting into it. It was just amazing. It was an amazing experience for me. I did not get to watch it at the theater with you guys, but I adore this movie. I had never listened to the Talking Heads. And then in I think college, someone introduced me to this and was like, oh, you have to watch this. And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know the band. It's not going to be a good time. Stopping Sense is weird because it has this unique thing where you could have never heard of this. And within 10 minutes, I think you're in, which I don't know if any other concert film has quite that power. Maybe Last Waltz, but there's something about the creation of it. It's almost like the musical equivalent of the creation of Earth in the Bible. <laughs> where the band comes together one piece at a time as it opens. You get Burns' entrance, and then you get stuff coming together. And that way, you understand each component of what's going to make this a special thing. Because you see, like, the stagehands. You see, like, all the people that are making this possible. Should we explain that? Basically, in the movie, at the beginning, David Byrne, the front man for the Talking Heads, comes out by himself with a boombox that plays the sort of backing to the first song. And then as the concert film goes on over the course of, like, the first third of it, Tina Wymouth comes out next and it's just her and David Byrne. So then you get the guitar and the bass and then it's the drummer of the band and then the keys come out. That's Jerry Harrison and Chris France. And then the backup singers and the other percussionists. So by the time you get towards the middle, it's this huge band all together. And there's very few live performance that have been captured that make a concert feel like a movie. I think that's the one thing I've noticed in any time I've watched live performance stuff, especially in movie form. Very few directors have transposed what a concert is into movie format. I think it's really interesting that you never see the audience. You see they're blacked out and they're on the bottom of the screen. You do see them at the end. But there's never like most concerts have like the guy that's walking behind them and you see the concert and you get people's reactions. But until that moment, you are the audience. And I think that's such an interesting decision because you do get stuff from the stage but it's always pretty careful to avoid seeing any other people except the people that are putting on the production. I think Demi wants you to be a part of it as much as anything and never realize that you're watching something that happened before to some degree until that last moment. It sort of exists as its own thing. It's in this genre. It's interesting because everyone's always got a take and their own opinion on like what is the ultimate sort of de facto thing from a specific genre. But Stop Making Sense sort of is this weird singularity that I think in most all aspects is considered the definitive thing. We got the last wall, so you maybe got one or two more, but there's not a big pool of stuff that gets that reputation around this and i think it's fascinating for that and also it just rules and life during wartime is the best song well i want to disagree with you on uh being the greatest concert film of all time i think the last wall kind of takes it i mean i'm sorry i love the last wall and i might go to that midnight show on august scorsese did a documentary on them and then shot a concert film it's probably one of the greatest concert films of all time and it's also a thanksgiving movie too if you can take that into consideration 
So maybe taking into consideration we're not talking about the last waltz. We're talking about Stop Making Sense. Why don't you talk about Stop Making Sense for once? There's a note that the last waltz intercuts documentary footage along with performance. So it's kind of a thing. But I think it's a pure concert experience. Stop Making Sense is still different. Because you get interviews with people backstage and you don't do that in this. It kind of doesn't count, Edward. Well, anyways, <laughs> last waltz, great picture. Anyway, Stop Making Sense, great motion picture. Talking Heads kills it. Dang, it's some of the shots. I mean, you can honestly feel it's a Demi movie, but it's in a format of its own that's on stage, that's filming Talking Heads, doing their amazing concert performance, and it's great. Probably the most well-shot concert film of all time, because this was shot in Panavision. I think this is probably the only concert film to be shot on Panavision for that kind of format, because look at that, like, that whole pristine, clean print. It's incredible. And also, this movie got parodied in, in a TV show called uh, a Documentary Now, where Fred Armisen and Bill Hader parodies that. It's quite hilarious. Yeah, this, this movie is just like, damn. It feels like a rock and roll Broadway play that they just started to shoot. And it's incredible. I love the burn. And also true stories, you know. True stories is amazing as well. Especially with the music. I got really into the Talking Heads about five or so years ago. But I have this really bad problem that whenever I get into something, I'll sort of consume, 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 consume. And then at a certain point, it's like my brain will set a bunch of walls down. <laughs> And then at that point, <laughs> everything that I've sort of absorbed, that's what they are. And everything outside of that isn't. And so, un like, I had actually not seen Stop Making Sense before, even though I love the talking heads. And part of that was just having not absorbed it then. And then part of it was being like, you know what? I'll wait till I can see this in a theater. And I am glad I got to see it in a theater. It's great. It's just a series of really incredible musical performances that build and build and build and so funny and joyful. How do you feel, Connor, when you saw those people dancing? Because you were there in the theater as a civilian. You weren't even working. You were like the perfect person to talk to because you were just watching the movie. I thought it was dope. You know, I mean, I didn't get up and dance because I didn't feel like it. But I mean, I, I was I was dancing in my seat. I was wiggling, wiggling around. I totally get it. I, if I was a less self-conscious person, I might have gotten up and danced. I don't know if I would have, actually. I'm not like a big dancer, necessarily. You floss like a mofo, though. I have I have floss. That's a lifestyle, though. That's <laughs> not really a dance. It was really like somebody broke the seal. For the dancing because once one person went up there like a dozen other people immediately started getting up and going over there it is funny how that works in human psychology i mean i can't really leave the booth because if, if you're the projectionist it's just you have to be there because of the equipment but i was so tempted i wanted to do the robot I wanted to just go in front of this screen just for a moment and have people be like, wait, is that the guy who introduced the movie and then just disappear? So there is something about when you see other people dancing, you're like, I got to be a part of that. This says more about me than the movie, but that was the weird self-conscious thing I had. I was like, I should dance. But then I realized, like, if I got up and danced, that would be a false move. That would be me trying to become part of something I wasn't. Connor, I would say that you and I think very similarly when I was in my 20s. And, and then you get to a point where you realize that it's all in your head. I don't know quite how to explain it, but like rather than overthinking it, the hardest part is just like getting your ass off. So just doing it. And then suddenly you're like over whatever the like psychological, like all the things you were thinking in your head. So by the time you're 40, you just go, whatever. I like, I'm not going to overthink this. But that's what I'm saying is that I think the overthinking would have been if I had gotten it. Ah, got it. So I was watching the movie from the booth and this movie's reputation is gargantuan. In many ways, it's as big as Citizen Kane or Jaws or when people talk about the concert film, you almost always think about Stop Making Sense. And I was watching it and 
I had a bit of a revelation, and this is the hardest, most ineffable thing to talk about in cinema, but I thought the brilliance of the piece was its tempo and its rhythm, and that's something that's so hard to explain. Whenever I see movies... I would say the overwhelming majority of movies that I see, they're good, you know, you enjoy them, but they don't necessarily transcend to that level of greatness. I mean, very few things do. I'm not knocking movies. I mean, very few paintings, very few novels, very few albums, very few songs, very few movies break that, you know, transcendent wall into sort of like kind of greatness. But when that does happen, one of the things I notice is this kind of incredible internal rhythm and tempo and cutting. And you're like, oh my goodness, this movie is, like the way it's cut and the way it's moving and you know you just feel this thing that it's it's tapping into this energy and it's riding that energy and it's never disrupting that energy and it rides that energy for 90 minutes and I was watching in the movie in the booth and I was dancing and I was getting into it and I wanted to get out of the booth I was like I want out of this booth I want to be a part of this thing and I think that the fact that they shot with all those cameras across four days allowed them all these different angles and all these editorial choices and I would just say kudos to the editor of that picture because you know if you're an editor that they probably cheated sometimes you know they probably like cut out some of the time it took to restage a song they probably did some hard cuts they probably found some things that were like maybe one song came later in the set list than it really did in the movie and but you're just watching it it, it just it worked and edited by Lisa Day kudos to Lisa Day it was also shot by Jordan Cronenworth I wanted to say that who did Blade Runner and Brewster McCloud and Altered States so I mean it helped, too, that you had somebody who knew how to light. But also, too, I mean, you have to give it up to David Byrne and you have to give it up to the Talking Heads because the idea was theirs. What do you think the thing, what do you think it meant how David Byrne kept doing the thing where he'd, like, lose his balance or he would get dizzy or he would suddenly, like, fall and he'd, go, he'd do this thing? That was a running theme of the show to the very, very end. I think it's a homage to James Brown when he did his thing. You know, where they put the blanket over over him. I think there's a lot of truth there. I was reading in my research, Edwin, that there was some kind of direct correlation between those two things. Byrne and the Talking Heads actually came out of art school, like David Bowie. And the other thing I was thinking was, you know, Bowie and the Talking Heads have such an understanding of the performative aspect of this and the visual aspect of it. Byrne was clearly part of the concept of the show was this idea of you'd have everybody in synchronicity, but then burn would fall out of it. It's all supposed to be this very calculated, careful setup. It's like moments where it seems like he's overtaken by the emotion or music of things that sort of lets him genocide. And I never, I guess I never really thought much of it. I just thought it was like signature burn style and then big suit. I love big suit so much. Just one of the most visually iconic things associated with this movie. And it doesn't actually happen until late in the movie, which is interesting considering how we all associate it is uh, late in the film. And I actually really love this. I didn't know this was going to happen because I was watching the movie for the first time. Like Connor was David Byrne disappears about two thirds of the way through the movie. And Lisa uh, Weymouth and her husband, Chris France, they did a side project during the time. Talking Heads off periods called Tom Tom Club, which produced the great song, which I've known my whole life. I used to hear that when I was four and be like, that's a dope song. What a weird song called Genius of Love. And if anybody knows it, it has just a real simple synthesizer beat. It's like, doo 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 
And then one guy's like, James Brown, James Brown. And then Burn disappears. The Tom Tom Club takes over the stage. They do Genius of Love. And then when they go into the next Talking Heads song, suddenly Burn appears in this extra, 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 extra large man suit that must have been built with some kind of skeletal architecture. And he starts dancing and singing in this really weird suit. That's how he looks. That's his real body. It's like Kingpin from Spider-Verse. That's what he looks like. That's a great thing. He looks like Kingpin. And then that becomes the visual sort of motif for the rest of the show, which is only three more songs or four more songs. And then he sheds that and he's sweating. And it was like such a simple idea, but so cool. Magical. It's so fun and funny. I just, I love how David Byrne and the Talking Heads are so willing to be like fun and funny and not like hyper serious in their way. The suit actually leans into something I think is so unique about this. And I think it speaks to Jonathan Demme. I was reading this article by an author, Josh Larson, and he talked about that Demi's one of the few filmmakers that in this live setting lets, this is David Byrne's movie as much as it is Jonathan Demi, and he knows that. He knows that everything about this revolves around David Byrne's charisma and his presence with the band. And so every decision he makes in his direction is to put Byrne in the spotlight and rise him up as like this mythological creature. And I think that's why it's so effective. And it's stuff like the big suit, which even if there's no history, it's just like big suits, cool, that in a conversation might have been like, you almost have to know like, oh, that's going to be iconic, this bizarre design decision but it fits the whole narrative of this weird night together what Demi does within that like I don't know if there's any sort of in terms of generosity as a filmmaker to emphasize like Byrne as an auteur usually you want like your director silence you want to be credited and, and known for all the decisions you made as the director but I think a lot of this is he's like I gotta let Byrne do his thing because that's what makes this thing function I'm not as well versed in Jonathan Demi as other people I love Jonathan Demi I don't want to be misunderstood I love Jonathan Demi I'm a huge fan of something wild my favorite is Silence of the Lambs hands down I mean I think that movie is just unto itself. But Daniel, I do think without having done tons of research into Demi, one gets the sense that he is a immensely collaborative person and that unlike other filmmakers, Demi is okay considering himself part of a team. I think you get that feeling in his pictures. Like what you said, he's always making everybody look good. He's sort of figuring out how can I sort of elevate everybody else around me? That almost seems to be one of the defining characteristics of the Demi style because Demi is not flashy. In the way that, you know, you would say Scorsese is flashy or Tarantino is flashy in the way of they're like, I am here. You know who made this movie. That's not really Demi's thing. The one thing I want to say about David Byrne that I was noticing that I always worry about, everybody else on the stage looked like they were having a great time. Byrne looked the way I feel you would look if you were the director who was also acting in your own <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah. Like, I looked at him where he was like, are we getting the cues right? Are you doing this? He kept looking at everybody. Is this all coming together? He was doing his thing, but everybody else was just like grooving and jamming and they were like running on the theater and you saw pure joy. And I saw David Byrne being almost a little cold and removed from this thing he had created, which was a irony to me. Some of my favorite little beats. And I think Demi intentionally, Demi and Lisa, like let them pay out with his little moments where you see Byrne break and he smiles as stuff really like lights up where you can like see his smirk come and they leave those in. And I think it's because of that. Cause he has this sort of robotic all knowing presence to things that is removed from his band. And those little moments where he breaks, I think really make it. Cause you can see that even though he's has this character and he's in control of this, he's also having like the time of his life. He's just, he expresses it differently. I found a little note on Wikipedia. He said he wanted his head to appear smaller and the easiest way to do that was to make his body bigger. But then the second half is actually kind of profound because music is very physical and often the body understands it before the head. And I will also say, as someone who hadn't seen this before but knew about the big suit, 
I thought it was gonna get be like a progressively bigger suit, and it was gonna be like a, me- a, a mecha sized suit that he was gonna like get lowered into. Every song gets bigger. Yeah, and so I had like a false expectation there. So thumbs down. <laughs> So Demi, all the way through his life, was experimenting and trying different things and doing different projects, documentaries, concert films, music videos, commercials. Edwin, who do you want to shout out or what do you want to talk about, about a filmmaker who would branch out and do different things other than feature fiction movies? I want to shout out probably the most controversial topic I'm going to talk about. Michael Moore's uh, Canadian Bacon. It's kind of an inverse of what we're talking about. Somebody who normally makes nonfiction films making a fiction film. Well, I was talking about Canadian Bacon, one, because Michael Moore is known for making all these documentaries about corporate greed of America and decided to make, hey, why not why not make a comedy about uh, Americans going to war with Canada because our president is kind of a nobody and, uh, and there's no one going to war with. And, uh, you know, I, hey, let's go to war with Canada. Let's pop up the ante. Let's get America to buy guns so they can protect themselves. Honestly, it's one of the greatest comedies I've ever seen. They ever made. It's all freaking hilarious. John Candy, God rest his soul, who plays a... Uh, patriotic American sheriff who basically is like one of those Trump supporters and like, yeah, let's go over there and kick some Canadian butt. Even though Don Candy is Canadian, it is quite funny for him to do that. Yeah, it was his last film released. In some weird way, Canadian Bacon kind of relates to a lot of things that's happening today. Canadian Bacon is kind of like basically Michael Moore's Dr. Strangelove because there's a scene where they're in some war room which looks very similar to Dr. Strangelove. And I think Michael Moore is a big fan of Kubrick. And especially Dr. Strangelove. So there's like some kind of connection there with that movie. And how do you think that Michael Moore's predominantly documentary filmmaking informed his fiction filmmaking? Because that's the only fiction film he's ever made, right? Yeah, that's the only feature film he's ever done. I can can tell that he put a lot of his documentary stuff in the movie, you know, the stuff he knows that's in there. And it works pretty good for a feature film. He's pretty good at it. So first of all, we should shout out David Byrne's American Utopia directed by Spike Lee, which came out last year, which is like a perfect almost like sequel to Stop Making Sense. Now that I've seen it, it even has like a vaguely similar conceptual idea. The idea of sort of building out the stage. I also wanted to say that David Lynch in a weird way kind of does like a concert film a little bit in Twin Peaks The Return. We get a little bit of a concert film every episode. I'd love to see him do a like Nine Inch Nails concert film. But the main thing I wanted to shout out is the greatest DVD special feature of all time, The Fuzzball Rally, which is technically directed by Joe Cornish, who directed Attack the Block. If you haven't seen The Fuzzball Rally, it's Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost on their tour of the U.S. promoting Hot Fuzz. It's like 70 minutes long, and Joe Cornish, who, again, direct Attack the Plock, but is also their friend, is basically hanging out with them the entire time and videotaping them. And it is just a, like, 70-minute long, very joyful, fun kind of light on information and heavy on <laughs> hanging out with those guys just experience of their tour that involves a lot of them getting like gifted fool cakes every time they go <laughs> to like a hotel and them then flushing those cakes down the toilet because they don't know what else to do with them i could have given them to homeless people it's probably true but they were busy talking about hot fuzz has anyone seen that joe cornish movie from two years ago the night movie the kid who would be king it's great and if i saw it at like 12 it would have been my favorite movie for a few years it's one of those where it's like specifically tailored for kids and it knows it but it just tries to be well made in that regard and there's a kid who plays merlin in it and he's phenomenal it's a great time yeah shout out to joe cornish yeah i actually knew about him 
him for like years before I saw Attack the Block because of the Fuzzball Rally. Yeah, that was my introduction too. They always refer to him specifically as Lovely Joe Cornish. And so whenever <laughs> I think of him, I always think of him as Lovely Joe Cornish. I was going to say narrative directors who have done music things specifically. Edwin and I were taken with Edgar Wright's new documentary about the Sparks Brothers, which is like a pretty straightforward documentary, but it's such this obsessive love letter to the band that exists that if even if you know nothing about them, there's a very good chance you will come out being a fan or interested in the music. And I think that's really difficult because it's very rare that I watch music documentaries of stuff I don't know. And I kind of realized that you know, maybe if a filmmaker does it, I'll watch it. But a lot of these are either they're built to make you love something you love more, or if they're built really well, it'll do that. And if you don't know about them, you're going to find something to love about them. Jim Jarmusch has done a few documentaries, which I actually don't think are that great, but it speaks so interesting <laughs> to just his style, at least in my opinion, not really transcoding properly to it. The live music stuff, which is kind of, you know, captured live footage stuff and this is stuff around. He did one for the Stooges and he did one for um, Neil Young. And especially the Neil Young one, it's sort of like this lo fi, him trying to bring his aesthetic into it, and it feels like the band almost clashes with that idea in terms of their representation. Oh, totally, yeah. Crazy Horse? Crazy Horse is all about going off, like heavy metal style. And a lot of the movie is Jim Jarmusch, like, on-camera interviewing them and stuff. And for his style, it makes complete sense, but it feels like this weird, jarring connection of two worlds. But at the same time, you can tell that he loves these bands and he's trying to make something. So I think they're kind of fascinating. But in terms of just narrative people making documentaries, Connor brought them up, but I think Spike Lee's documentary output is insane. Spike Lee is not someone to pull punches in his narrative stuff at all, including with his last two films, Black Klansman and Defive Bloods, having real footage of events that are incredibly hard to watch. But specifically, I wrote when Levy's Break, he did, a, I know he did a Michael Jackson documentary. Oh yeah, Four Little Girls. Really, in a lot of these with HBO, he must have some connection. He's done a few Michael Jackson documentaries and then he did a few, I haven't watched his sports stuff. Oh yeah, he did a famous Kobe one. Yeah, he did, it's great. God, I love Kobe Bryant. He's one of my favorite athletes along with Muhammad Ali. And he did this thing where uh, it was the game where Kobe went off against the Knicks for 60 and Spike Lee just had Kobe do what's the equivalent of DVD commentary so you watch the game again and Kobe's just like yeah right here da -da -da, this guy was trying to do this <laughs> you were like wow this is amazing if you're a basketball fan it's awesome and if you're a Kobe fan rest in peace as well you get Kobe talking for an hour about what he does on the Kobe one I, I read that he used 30 cameras to shoot the thing so he could do it in a single day so we just have so much footage that he could put together to keep things interesting because he only got the one day to do it I guess but I, I think just his voice it's so interesting to see him using his voice and position as a filmmaker both narratively and in documentary to speak to the audience as he's trying to reach and share the messages he wants to reach with the audience regardless of their taste in genre you can kind of get to everyone and how it seems to move across you can tell what he's passionate about and what he's uh, wants to discuss through all of his work and even in documentary stuff I think especially with I don't know if there's the term for it but like where it's not really original footage you might have interviews but everything else is archive footage that he's putting together for like the levies and for Four Little Girls. Still feeling his touch all over it, which I think is such an interesting thing in documentary work that's hard. How do you find your voice when other people's voice are telling the story? I think Spike Lee's stuff is incredible in that regard. And now he's using those same powers to shill for cryptocurrency. Yeah, man. <laughs> in perfect timing, the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year, he accidentally announced the Palme d'Or winner as the first award. Everyone freaked out, but I think that's the best. That's the Spike Lee move. And also he's, is he directing it this year? Oh, he was the head of the jury, yeah. I assume part of it is his influence. Maybe I'm just giving credit there. But the selections this year in regards to the winners with him as the head are all so fascinating in the best way. I am 
so excited for everything coming out of that. And it sounds like a very good year of very different winners than I'm used to. As we, you know, slowly and haltingly and imperfectly move past COVID into whatever normal life will be, I think can 2021, I totally encourage people to look at the movies that are coming out of it. I can't wait to see a lot of them. For people who have written what I feel are these premature obituaries about the death of cinema, to see can 2021 and all these people there and everyone getting excited. And the same thing, some movies were good, some movies weren't good, some movies shocked, some movies were surprises. I'm a huge Sean Baker fan, the guy who did Tangerine, in Florida Project and his Red Rocket. And I didn't realize that all these movies he's been making have all been about sex workers in one way or another. I'll be curious to see when he makes a non-sex worker movie. But hey, all his sex worker movies are incredible. So it just gives you hope. Because you're like, people just got super excited about Can, And I was like, you know, we're going to be okay. We're going to be all these ideas that, like, these movies aren't getting made and crowds aren't going into the palais. That's not happening. Can proved it is happening. I wanted to shout out the directors who are also theater directors, actually. This is something I think about. When I was a kid, my mom, mercifully, maybe, put me in theater instead of sports because I was such a nerdy, uncoordinated guy and I was not a team player. <laughs> and now I love sports, actually. I mean, I don't know if you guys would like, I'd do a pickup basketball game or baseball game or soccer game any day. I love it. But when I was a kid, I was just very nerdy, very self-conscious, very in my head. And my mom was just like, I don't think sports are for you. So she put me in the theater and uh, <laughs> I was an actor. I was a I was an actor really until I was about 14 or 15 from six to 14, 15. And as a result of that, I started directing stuff for the stage. And I got, you know, the people that I worked with helped me. And I think about this a lot. I just want to shout out like Sergei Eisenstein, the amazing uh, Russian filmmaker from the teens and 20s and 30s who basically discovered a whole way to use film editing language. That came from theater. He was a theater director, and he was just able to think differently. Orson Welles had the Mercury Theater and was doing these Shakespeare adaptations, had been an actor and also on radio, and he figured out ways to take the cinematic medium and do it differently than if you're just taught how to do movies. You're like, oh, no, this is how you make a movie. And Orson Welles and Sergei Eisenstein were like, but Why? Like, why, why does that have to be the way you make a movie? And then other theater directors, I would shout out, they're all different, but Aaliyah Kazan, Streetcar Named Desire, East of Eden, On the Waterfront, came out of theater and, of course, introduced this way of acting that totally changed the acting style in American cinema. I would also shout out Igmar Bergman. He came out of theater, and when he used to say that theater was his wife, but films were his mistress. And I don't know that that's, like, the way I would ever want to see anything. As a married man myself, I would never want to phrase that that way exactly. But what what I like about what I think that phrase means is the way I interpret it. Bergman eventually became the director for, I think, the National Theater in Sweden. And Bergman would be doing these massive productions every year, his whole life. Even when he retired from film, he did 20 more years of theater. But somehow his theater understanding allowed him to make movies way under budget that were visually incredible because he understood that with lighting and human faces, you can do amazing things. And you don't need to have 10 million, 20 million, 30 million dollars for sets and locations and this, that, and the other thing. Bob Fosse, I mean, he's another one of my favorite directors. He came out of Broadway. Stanley Donnan is another one of my favorite directors. They all brought a kind of razzmatazz and razzle-dazzle and creative problem-solving to cinema because they weren't bound by this idea that movies had to be made this certain way. And they really discovered the intrinsic qualities of cinema that, ironically or paradoxically, people who go to film school never discover. And it drives me crazy because cinema, you know, it does. It really does. 
cinema is like to me the greatest art form that has ever existed <laughs> for me i'm not it's subjective and it's like what people say about us only using 10% of our brains i feel like the majority of movies that come out you're just like it could be so much more if you just were like F it and you thought of different ways to do it anyway i'm not ragging on anyone i've never made a feature film don't listen to me who am i to talk i'm just an exhausted father of 3 but that's what, <laughs> that's what i believe and final thoughts. Well, went back to Barnes and Nobles again because I ain't going back to the Glendale one because their Barnes and Nobles don't have good stuff. But the one of the Grove did, so I got myself Gimme Shelter, The Big Chill, Memoirs of a Murder, Defending Your Life. It's a mad, 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 mad world on Blu-ray because I have a DVD, but I upgrade to the Blu-ray because that one has like too many discs, so I'd rather watch its whole entirety on one disc. Bill Duke's Deep Cover, uh, One-Eyed Jack, Girlfriends. Tell me how that is. I've been wanting to see Girlfriends forever. Yeah, this is like a blind buy. I know nothing about it, but I knew the new bet played it, and then, uh, you know. Along with Eraserhead, Stanley Kubrick's favorite film of the last five years of the 70s. That's great, Craig. Uh, and also got uh, Alexander Payne's election. Good picture. Good what picture. A good, what a great list of movies. Well, so this weekend I saw the new Nicolas Cage movie Pig, and it was great. Can't really recommend it enough. It's so hard to explain the tone it's going for because it's not an action movie. It definitely isn't that, but it's hard to tell if it is just a straight drama or what because it's very funny also. I, I'd almost say go in blind because it, it just gets to surprise you all the way. It's beautiful. Is it the anti-John Wick? Someone pitched it as that, and it, that really makes your expectations goof up. It is its own thing. I don't know what I'd really compare it to. Anti implies like the opposite, and this is more like to the side of John Wick. I mean, there's been a bunch of movies lately that have reminded me of like Safety Brothers stuff, so there's a little bit elements of that. I actually do think the trailer is pretty solid and doesn't really give anything away and gives a good indication of what the film kind of feels like. Also great in it is Alex Wolf, who's from Hereditary, who plays really the co-lead to Nicolas Cage. It's almost like a buddy movie with the two of them at times. And you can uh, watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Yeah, I'm, all, I'm on the pig train. Pig really surprised me. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, especially especially if you've ever if you've ever owned a pet, I think. I wrote about it that it's like about loneliness and like coming to terms with like your own melancholy in your life and like grief and like your passion and your search for yourself it's so good and genuinely i think we say this a lot when new nick cage movies comes out i think we underappreciate cage sometimes he's so good and we're always like oh we're gonna get crazy cage in this movie he turns in the performance that's needed for every movie he's in and he's so good at it. and i think especially in this there is not a person better suited to deliver the lines given he's phenomenal in it the other thing in the realm of music documentaries is I co-edited a music documentary that's making festival rounds. We won a festival in Oklahoma, which is very cool. Congratulations. I don't have the details yet, but I, it should become available on streaming platforms. When I have an actual confirmation, I'll do it. But it's about an Oklahoma band called Skating Polly. The film's called Skating Polly Ugly Pop. It was directed by Henry Mortensen. I mean, talking on documentary stuff, co-editing, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. It is an immense challenge to take 200 hours of footage and build people's lives and characters that are true to it while honoring a director's vision of how it's supposed to go. It is, it's such a unique thing that I respect because I fear it. I'm very excited about that and very proud of the team. Congratulations, Danny. Congratulations. I think I'll just tell this crazy dream, not that you guys care at all, but... <laughs> 
And literally, I had this dream. I'm looking at the clock. I had this dream maybe six hours ago. I dream journal. I've talked about this. I write about my dreams. I've noticed I've been dream journaling way more than real journaling. And I'm glad the dreams are coming back because when you have kids, you don't sleep as regularly and the dreams don't come as often. And that would But in this dream, I'm at my grandparents' house. They used to live right above the Pacific Ocean. I've had many dreams there and it's in this dream world I go to every day. So it's not really like it looked, but it is at the same time. And it's the end game of some kind of everybody's hunting everybody most dangerous game kind of thing and suddenly this guy named Blaine shows up and he's a very sort of boring looking businessman almost like Bob Iger the head of Disneyland I see him and I'm like oh no and I run to like get away from this guy because I know like I don't want to mess with this guy and I actually realize I'm not even equipped to mess with this guy and then he goes up onto the porch of my grandparents and there is Donald Trump and I'm sorry it's going to get racy y'all but then he gives Donald Trump two dildos and he puts them in either hand of Donald Trump and then he like punctures his head or something and then suddenly Donald Trump is caught and then he places him in this compromising gay love affair thing and suddenly everything Donald Trump has been telling everybody it's like he's caught can't get out of it he can't talk about it and suddenly the camera zooms back and there's this huge tube that goes way above the city to this like penthouse apartment above the clouds and then like I'm suddenly above it seeing it and this is where Blaine lives and there is this book that says American capitalism and by the way I am an independent I own my own company I am not against capitalism I don't consider myself an ist of any kind I have no issues I think everything is flawed I'm like fastbender I shoot in all directions I think everything has pros and cons but nevertheless I had this revelation in the dream that there are people way more powerful than the people you think are powerful and that this guy was like Donald Trump has become like a problem <laughs> in the dream and he was like we're just with this is just how we're dealing with it and then this guy lived above all of us with his American capitalism book. And then suddenly they sent Will Ferrell up there and Will Ferrell was narrating. He was like, I've never been this high up. And he was trying to bring comedic relief to it. And then I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I got to get out of here and deal with this, like whatever this is. And then I woke up and then my wife was breastfeeding our baby and I had to record this dream. And then I was just like, be very, very careful in my head because there are people who like really pull the strings and they're the people you don't know. And when you become an inconvenience, uh, they're going to make sure you're not a problem anymore. And that was the dream. So uh, there you go, guys. I don't know if that meant anything to you. When people tell their dreams, usually people zone out. But that was a nutty dream that happened six hours ago. On that note, folks, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for uh, joining us yet again for another exciting podcast of Secret Movie Club. I want to thank the team. They really got us through 2020. We're not out of the woods yet. There's a lot that we have to do, but we're only here in July of 2021 because of everybody here and not here, including people like Heather and Casey and Steven and our whole new team of folks who are helping. So as always, thank you to our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz, who is the only reason that all this creative content is getting out on time. So thank you, Connor, as always. Next week on Secret Movie Club Podcast 67, we are going to be talking sort of the inverse of this in a way. We're going to be talking about projects that directors walked away from or disowned or felt very unhappy with later on in life. And we're going to key that around David Lynch's Dune, which is always fascinating. We just showed it on 35 and had a great turnout. I was very nervous, but people showed up, including a guy in an all-out Dune outfit, a Paul Atreides outfit, which was pretty dope. And the reason, uh, you know, Connor suggested 
suggested, I thought it was a great suggestion, is David Lynch has been very clear that Dune was a miserable experience. David Lynch has equated it to death. Uh, he has said, <laughs> I died on that film. And yet he remained friends with the producer, Dino De Laurentiis, to the end of Dino's life. He gave Dino's eulogy, one of De Laurentiis' eulogies, partially because Laurentiis then went and funded Blue Velvet immediately after this disastrous experience for all of them. And I, I think there's some kind of weird lesson that we can talk about, about sometimes the hell movie, and almost all great directors have it. The hell movie is the movie that forges them in fire in a weird way. But, you know, you can, you can accept or reject that thesis. We're going to be talking about that next week. As as always, go to secretmovieclub.com. We are doing a bunch of stuff and we continue and it's not just showing movies. We got people making movies. We got comedy troops coming in and dubbing movies. We got blog writers writing about great. So we just want to be a community of movie lovers and movie makers. We want you to be a part of it. All right, that's it. Let's start the week. Thank you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, citizens. Oh, thank God. Thank you.